Well, it's the time of year with um, college starting up and the beginning of a new semester. It always reminds me of one of the more anxious seasons in my life when I became, uh, as a freshman at Western Kentucky University, I don't have a lot of vivid memories of my past, but I do remember this one at 18 years old. My parents helped me move into uh, Pierce Ford Tower. Anybody live in Pierce Ford Tower? Nobody? Oh, Glenn, all right. I didn't know it was that old, but (laughs) I would have been nervous if I had known that. Uh, But I was in Pierce Ford Tower on the 22nd floor. What floor were you on, Glenn? Okay. Okay. Um, room 2208, and my roommate was a friend from high school, but he wasn't moved in just yet. He was coming the next day or so, so we, we packed my collection of primary colored Izod polos and plaid pants up the elevator. Those were my preppy days, and we carried a few posters to adorn the walls. Of course, I had an eight-track player with Frampton, Boston, and Kansas cassettes. Uh, my mother made up the bed as her final act, kind of like the Last Supper, And uh, I rode down the elevator with them, and we got to the parking lot, and we hugged and said goodbye, and then they drove off. I walked back to to the tower, and I rode the elevator back up on the room, and I sat on the bed, and I had a moment to myself. It means I cried there for a few moments. I didn't know one other person on that campus. Uh, I was moving into this dorm with 900 other people guys, all of whom were strangers. Nobody knew that I was kind of a big deal back home. No one really cared much about that. It was time to start over, finding my place in this new sea of people, also trying to find their place. And I wondered, you know, I wondered, will I fit in? Will I, will I make any friends? One of the books that I think all college students should read is by Donald Miller, entitled Searching for God Knows What. I've given dozens of these books away. And toward the end of the book, Miller refers to a story about what it might have been like working in a circus between the time of the two wars, World War I and World War II, hanging out around a woman with a beard and men who could swallow swords and a man with cat crab pinchers for for hands. These circuses were a traveling sideshow, and for a quarter you could step in and see the sights. Some protesters picketed to end these shows and said, you're exploiting the deformed. Speaking about deformities, one of the performers said, we have a community, a group of people who, because of their deformities, accept the deformity in others. We're the lucky ones because we understand that people are only people, that the thing that you think makes you better than us is an illusion. So in this circus community, there was a clear hierarchy. And among the acts Miller describes was one featuring a man with three legs. Before he arrived, the bearded woman was the main act. But when the man with three legs arrived, she got bumped from the top spot. Miller describes the scene. Though the man could walk normally, for the act he dressed in sloppy large clothes and worked his hair into a frenzy. He stammered onto stage in a daze, swinging his body left and right and acting angry. And each time he turned his body, his third leg swung out and startled the women and children. In New York, the three-leg performer got too close to the audience and was attacked by a man attempting to protect his wife from an accidental touch. And this only served to make the act more popular as the papers reported the incident, and the owner of the circle circus doubled the three-legged man's salary. Well, this nearly destroyed the circus community. No longer was a man with three legs on par with a bearded lady. 
a hierarchy had, had emerged, three legs beating two, female facial hair beating crab pinchers, and all this was decided by the crowd. The bearded lady said, not everyone is lucky enough to be born with three legs. It's not like he did anything to deserve that kind of blessing. And I read that, and I thought about life on a university campus. One of the common feelings both parents and students have this time of year, which may be on the surface but also buried under a few layers of excitement, is fear. Mary and I had some fears when we took our kids to college, and I know they had fears as they started college. And I'd say one of the most common fears new students face as they move onto a campus with 30,000 others just like them is this. Will I fit in? Will I make any friends? Will people like me? So this morning, I want to come in the side door of addressing this fear of the hierarchy, this fear of, of not measuring up, and we'll look at a personal encounter Jesus has with a guy who provides us some insight into our fear of being unwelcomed and unwanted. It's the text that Ron read a moment ago in Matthew 8. Let's read this one more time. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Who would Jewish readers think about when they heard or read these words? Can you think of anyone else who came down from a mountain at some point in time? That's what we read about there also. Moses came down from a mountain one time with the laws in his hands, which God had carved out for him. In fact, Moses gave Israel the ancient laws regarding leprosy, laws which would have pertained to this man who came to Jesus as he came down the mountain. They were part of the law of Moses, which formed the legal basis for Israel to maintain a relationship with God. And that law was given to Moses on a mountain. Do you remember what happened one of those times Moses stayed on the mountaintop a little too long? All the people were thinking, he's taking so long. He should have been down here by now. Maybe he died up there. And they said to Aaron, their leader, make us a God who will lead us. And Aaron thought, you know, they may be right. Moses has been gone a long time. Tell you what, uh, take off your earrings, throw them in this bucket. He melted all the gold, the golden earrings, and he cast them into the shape of a calf. Later, Aaron describes it this way. I had the people throw their earrings into the oven, and out came this calf, which is kind of a humorous way to put that. And the people said, here is your God who brought you out of Egypt. I mean, this is a crazy Event. It's all written down in Exodus 32. You can check it out for yourself. The Israelites actually said this golden calf led Israel out of Egypt. And then instead of correcting their recollection of history, Aaron builds an altar by the calf and invites everyone to a party. The next day they worshiped the calf. They offered sacrifices to it. They gave offerings. Then they sat down and they ate. And the, and the text says they got up to indulge in revelry which means boisterous, unrestrained merrymaking, kind of like what game day was like yesterday around Waller uh, and State Street, I would guess. Well, back up on the mountain, God clues Moses in on what's going on in the valley, and Moses could hear the revelry from a long way off. And when he got near enough to see what was going on, the calf, the parting, he threw down the stones God himself had written on, and he ground up the calf into gold dust, mixed it with water, and made the Israelites drink it. 
That's not all. He called the priests to his office and gave them some pretty serious marching orders, and about 3,000 Israelites died that day. Contrast that event, that, that scene, with Jesus coming down off the mountain after his message. He's been teaching about a new way of life, a new way of relating to God, and this new way is based not on laws written on stone, but on relationship, which begins in the heart. As, as he comes off the mountain, the first guy he runs into is a man with leprosy. Now, in those days, the belief is that someone with leprosy is the embodiment of sin. He's guilty for something big, or he wouldn't have had this happen to him. Let's, let's pull off the road here for just for a moment and give some thought to this man's life experience. I want you to understand a little bit what he may have thought. How long has it been since anyone has made any physical contact with this guy? When is the last time he felt a touch from his wife? When was the last time he held his little girl in his arms? What is common for everyone else, a handshake, an embrace, a tap on the shoulder, a kiss, all of that is taken away from this guy when the priest declares him as unclean. No one has touched him from that point in his life until this magnificent day. Every time he meets someone, the horror of the disease outweighs the concerns of their heart. Jesus' response is quite different from Moses' response. Jesus has a right to be angry when he meets this guy. This guy's breaking the law. He's putting people at risk. He, he's very contagious. If Jesus were to fuss at this guy, to yell at this guy, to tell him to, to return to his little sequestered camp outside of town, nobody would have been surprised. But when this man steps toward the crowd, they part like the Red Sea. Panic rushes through everyone who's standing there. Every person steps away. They grab their child's hand. They make a barricade with their outstretched arms. And in the middle of the panic and streams, screams and commotion, Jesus moves toward this outcast. One author makes this observation. The infection was banished by a word from Jesus. The loneliness was treated by a touch. Now check this out. Instead of breaking stuff like Moses did, Jesus puts the broken pieces of this man's life back together. Jesus is the new Moses coming to bring true peace coming to bring a new law, a fresh way to relate to God. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 may be the greatest sermon ever preached. These three chapters are the perfect place to learn about the Jesus way. Beautiful. They're clear. They're challenging. And perhaps if you're listening, they're highly discouraging. Jesus' commands are 100% impossible to achieve. And that's his point. He throws down this standard. He iterates what the law says. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't make an oath or break a promise. And those, things, those things are nearly attainable. But then Jesus raises the bar. And you know how it's worded. He says, but I say, and then he expands on the law to be impossible to keep. And finally, he drops this standard on his audience. In Matthew 5, 48, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This expectation is unattainable. It's impossible. And that's exactly what Jesus is wanting us to see. Paul describes it this way in Galatians 3. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. 
And now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Now that faith has come, we're under the supervision of Christ. And the intent of the law is to point to Jesus. We're led by the hand to understand we can't reach this standard. We can't pull this off. We can't be this good or this right. We need Jesus. And no matter how hard we try, there's no way we can fulfill the law. That reality leaves us with, with no peace. We, it leaves us being at constant odds with God. The point of Jesus' sermon, in fact, the point of the entire Bible is really simple. We need Jesus. The point is not to try harder not to sin. The point is not to try harder not to be angry or to keep your promise or to love your enemy or not to lust. In order to find peace, we don't need to try harder. We simply need Jesus. He tells us he is the source of our righteousness, our holiness. We're not, we're not going to get there simply with more effort, grunting harder and toughing it out. When Jesus finishes his message, he comes down from the mountain and he takes his followers on a field trip. <clears throat> he says, let me show you what I've been talking about. And they come down off the mountain and not so coincidentally, standing right in their path is this very, this, this very living symbol of sin, a clear example of what law-breaking looks like as they meet this guy with leprosy. It's cool how God puts object lessons in our lives at just the right time in just the right place. And this man with leprosy is blatantly breaking the law. He should be with the other lepers in seclusion. And when the crowd sees him, what would their reaction be? It's like, whoa, you know, get, get back. Have you ever heard of the, the get back coach in football? He's the guy designated to keep the head coach off the field and on the sidelines so he doesn't get thrown out. That's what's going on here in this scene. They're like, get back. They're pulling people back. The parents grab their children by the wrist and yank them to their side. Maybe a few people pick up rocks just in case this guy's crazy also. Again, think about this man for a moment. He's seen this kind of reaction from the first day he contracted this disease. Do you think he'd ever become immune to this kind of treatment? Would he ever get used to the rejection, the fear, the isolation? Jesus, however, doesn't back off, and he's not put out. In fact, he leans in. This man falls to the ground and says these words, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus not only leans in, he puts his hand on the man's diseased, contagious skin, and he says, I'm willing, be clean. You know, touch is, is so important. When was the last time someone intentionally put their hand out and touched this man? And did Jesus need to touch him in order to heal him, in order to help him? The very next event Matthew writes about shows Jesus healing a guy who's nowhere near him. Only a word was necessary. But Jesus is making a point. Near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this statement in Matthew 5. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is demonstrating what he just preached. Consider this. Do we think more about something clean being sullied by something dirty? Or do we think something dirty will become more pure around something clean? For example, if I sneeze into my hand and then I shake your freshly washed hand, whose hand do we think is most at risk of being changed? 
do I think, oh, there's no need to wash my hands now. I just shook hands with a guy whose hands are clean. That's not what we think, is it? You get out the hand sanitizer and you rub it to anything exposed to my sneeze-infested hands. It's, it's like this. Most parents don't think their child's angelic behavior will transform the little rebel next door. We fear our little angel will be tainted by the presence of the little rebel. This, this encounter Jesus has at the foot of the mountain challenges that assumption. Perhaps for the first time in history, something clean makes something unclean become clean again. Peace has been restored. First, Jesus teaches it, and then he models it. And the message has been leprosy is a sin which contaminates and spreads and infects. This, but the message of Jesus is, I'm greater than sin. I'm greater than disease. Jesus is clearly, clearly revealing the gospel. A new way to live. Grace has nothing to fear from sin because grace is greater than sin. Grace heals sinners. Grace restores brokenness. Grace removes punishment. In a contaminated world, Jesus brings peace and cleanness people everywhere are looking for. You know, I'm not interested in going through life scared of being around sin. I don't want to hunker down and hide out. And even if I did, I most likely would display great inconsistency in what I was afraid to be around and what I was comfortable being around. Instead of going down that road, I'd rather be focused and excited about grace. Grace is on the offense. Grace takes the initiative. Grace brings healing to the broken. Grace brings life to the hopeless. Grace brings light to the darkness. Grace reaches out and embraces the rejected and the lonely and the desperate. I don't want to spend my days afraid. I don't want to spend my days bemoaning how bad society has become. I want to spend my days focused on the one who is greater than the darkness, than the evil, than the sin. I want to spend my days focused on Jesus and his grace and his finished work. Don't miss this. All this man did was ask to be healed, and he trusted in Jesus. That's all he did. Asked to be healed and trusted Jesus. Listen to these words from the writer of Hebrews. These have become some of the most important words in the Bible to me. In Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Did you catch that? Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of God. He's sitting down. He's done His work. It's, it's all finished. If there were more to do, he wouldn't be sitting. He'd be standing. He'd stand up until the work was done. He'd stand up to the very end, but he's not standing. What's he doing? He's sitting. And his posture gives me permission to relax, to trust his work, to embrace grace. If Jesus is inside of you, if grace has transformed you, then guilt no longer has a hold on you. Condemnation no longer needs to paralyze you. Fear no longer needs to control you. Here's a line from Donald Miller's book again. He writes, we are free, free to take the power of good, the power of grace, 
the power of Jesus to people who are desperate for it. This is, this is really a beautiful event. And I trust you can see yourself in this encounter at the foot of the mountain when Jesus comes down and meets this man with this disease. This man has run out of options. He can't fix himself. He can't cleanse himself. He's unclean, unholy, unwelcomed, and unwanted. He has no right to approach Jesus. He isn't looking for more religion. He's searching for Jesus. He says, Lord, I know if you are willing, you can make me clean. You can piece my life back together. I know you can do that. And isn't that a beautiful way to approach Jesus? Jesus, if you're willing, I know. And, and we fill it in. We, we run into a lot of unwillingness, don't we? we ex- what we experience is people who are unwilling, unwilling to share, unwilling to hire, unwilling to talk, unwilling to loan, to trust, unwilling to forgive, unwilling to stay or unwilling to go, unwilling to cooperate, compromise, change, unwilling to move on, unwilling to grow, unwilling to be honest, unwilling to even try. They're just unwilling. And if you've experienced your share of unwillingness, you've got to hear these words Jesus say to a guy who's in the same boat that you're in. I want you to hear Jesus speak these words to you. In fact, say them slowly with me. I am willing. Do one more time. I am willing. Beautiful, compassionate, welcomed, desired words. Maybe you've been longing for someone to be willing. If so, listen carefully. Jesus says to you, I'm willing. I know how bad it is. I know how lost you feel. I know the darkness you're in. I see the shame burying you. I want you to know this. I'm willing. Now, this is the amazing part. What's required? What does Jesus' willingness require? Nothing but the realization that we're out of options. Nothing but our surrender because we don't have anything left to do. Nothing but our letting go, our giving up. He trusted in Jesus. All the man did, he asked to be healed, and he trusted in Jesus. The message of the Sermon on the Mount is not about how holy we are nor how perfect we can be. The message of the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus. You know, classes at UK began a few days ago, starting tomorrow at Transy. Eastern started up. There are 6,500 freshmen that have moved in over here. 6,500 18-year-olds. That's a horde. 30,000 students on campus. For every college student, the beginning of the semester is the opportunity to start over. And that's not just for college kids, but for many of us, as we see fall as a time to get a fresh start, the beginning of the semester kind of runs into all of our lives. I believe Jesus' encounter with this man who had leprosy is about as relevant as it gets this time of the year. Campus life is not easy. It never has been. I don't believe campus is any more evil than it has been for the past several decades. It's always been a difficult environment to navigate. One reason it's difficult is because your performance is constantly being assessed and graded. Your knowledge is assessed in the classroom. Your cool factor is assessed by your friends, potential friends. Young men and young women are assessed by those with power as to whether they'll fit into their sorority or fraternity. 
do you have the right stuff? Are you AO Pi worthy? Are you Sigma new material? And the answers and denial devastate people. It's terrible to watch. You're assessed by how you look, what you wear, where you live, what you drive, where you're from, what your major, major is, how much money your parents make, like you have anything to do with that. You're assessed on Facebook, how many friends you have, how many people follow you. You'll be assessed with every scholarship application you submit and every interview you experience. And soon you'll be assessed by potential employers. This is cause for a lot of pressure, anxiety, feelings of inadequacy, or false confidence, but a whole lot of fear. And that's not just happening on a college campus or in middle school or in high school. This assessment by the crowd is happening in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, even with our own families. We're all being assessed, and no one is an exception. So this message today is one I'm hoping you'll hear clearly. Jesus says to you, I'm willing. And his willingness is not based on anything you do, anything you know, any way you look, any connections you have. His willingness is not based on your wealth, your image, your position, your affiliates. His willingness brings fresh air into the room and displaces the stale air of assessments, grading, and measuring up. His clean air purifies the dirty air of loneliness, lostness, lovelessness. He says, I'm willing. And the question we need to face straight up is simply, do you trust him? When this culture of performance gets you down this season, remember this encounter. Remember Jesus' words. And remember, he is willing. Choose to trust his message. Choose to trust his promise. Do you know this Jesus who is willing? And do you trust him to make you whole? Let's stand together and sing.